With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Hope you're enjoying it. Spend some time with your family. Show some respect for our fallen soldiers uh, that defended our freedom. And enjoy my week of Firestarters and engagement on Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I'm Jason Whitlock. Let's get it rolling. On Monday, I went off on Tim Jackie Anderson, who got Josh Donaldson, Yankee slugger Josh Donaldson, suspended for one game because – Tim Anderson is part of the Major League Beta Association. Check out this fire starter. Uh, Tony La Russa, he's a baby groomer. His pronouns are they and them. The legendary 77-year-old baseball skipper and best friend of Bob Knight and Bill Parcells has apparently bowed to the social media and social justice winds and reinvented himself as a groomer. He's overseen the transition of the Chicago White Sox into a sixth grade girls softball team. Adhering to leftist custom, Chicago's lone African-American player, Tim Anderson, volunteered to be the first major leaguer to sacrifice his stick and balls. Saturday night, Anderson erupted in anger and emotion because a member of the New York Yankees, Josh Donaldson, trolled him with the nickname Jackie a reference to the Hall of Famer, Jackie Robinson. Three years ago, in a Sports Illustrated interview, Anderson analogized himself to the baseball pioneer who integrated Major League Baseball in 1947. Anyone remotely familiar with sports culture isn't surprised that Anderson's opponents would use the analogy to rib the shortstop. LaRusa has been involved with professional baseball for 59 years. He made his Major League debut in 1963 with the Kansas City Athletics. An infielder, LaRusa is acutely aware of the kind of banter players use to get inside the head of an opponent. Jackie is quite possibly the tamest and lamest insult ever uttered on a baseball diamond, football field, basketball court, soccer pitch, or ice hockey rink. LaRusa compared it to one of the worst. Here's Tony LaRusa describing the grave insult of being called Jackie. Uh, you made a racist comment, Donaldson, and that's all I'm going to say. That's pretty strong. That's as strong as it gets. LaRusa turned a routine bench clearing standoff into a Black Lives Matter debate. To no one's shock, Tim Anderson embraced the role of baby George Floyd with a heavy dose of Jussie Smollett. Anderson loves attention. He's a bat-flipping showboat. Here's him leaning into the controversy he started, LaRusa fueled, and now Anderson 
is taking to the next level. Yeah, he just made a you know disrespectful comment. Uh, you know, basically was you know trying to call me Jackie Robinson. Like, what's up, Jackie? Uh, you know, uh, I don't play like that. You know, I don't. I don't really play at all. Uh, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't really you know bothering nobody today. But uh, you know, he made a comment, and uh, you know it was, it was disrespectful. And uh, I don't think it was called for. It was unnecessary. You guys got the passage shots from there. Yeah, what happened in the first, the first time he got on, you know, and I spared him that time, uh, and it happened again. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was just, you know, just uncalled for. You know, it's not, you know, I got time to, you know, be playing like that. How'd you manage to contain yourself on that kind of comment? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, you know, uh, it was very disrespectful, you know. But, uh, I don't want to play like that. You call it disrespectful. Tony just said it was racist. Is that accurate? Yeah, same, same, same along, along that same line, yeah. If you're going to say it, say it with your chest stuck out. Don't say it with your head there. It was disrespectful. And uh, I, I don't play like that. It was disrespectful. Yeah. He knows what he's saying is a crock of doo-doo. That's why he won't make eye contact with anybody. And that's why he's mumbling and he doesn't say it with his chest out. Anderson overreacted to Donaldson's harmless jab. The race car justified Anderson's on-field blow-up, put Donaldson on the defensive, and summoned Major League Baseball to launch an investigation. I'd love to know what exactly the league is going to investigate. Donaldson copped to calling Anderson Jackie. Listen for yourself. All right, so first inning, I called him Jackie. So let me give you a little context of that. 2019, he came out with the interview, said that he's a new Jackie Robinson of baseball. He's going to bring back fun for the game, right? And 2019, when I played for Atlanta, we actually joked about that on the game. Um, I don't know what's changed from, the, and I've said it to him uh, in years past, not, not in any manner than just joking around for the fact that he called himself Jackie Robinson, you know. Um, so, you know, if something has changed uh, from that, like my meaning of that is not any term uh, trying to be racist by any fact of the matter. Um, it was just off of an interview that what he called himself. And when we said that before, we joked about it. He laughed, whatever. Uh, What, what is there to investigate? I mean, seriously. What's the investigation going to entail? And why is the media playing along with this? What needs to be investigated is the public mutilation of Anderson's genitals. Three years ago, in the Sports Illustrated article where he compared himself to Jackie Robinson, Anderson proudly boasted about calling Royals pitcher Brad Keller a weak-ass effing N-word. He called Keller a weak-ass effing N-word. Anderson received a one-game suspension for that derogatory attack. Keller is white. I'm sure the light discipline given to Anderson for that bit of racism caught the attention of many white Major League players. 
Anderson's defiance surely registered too. It's also difficult to miss Anderson's delusion and or racial dysphoria. In the Sports Illustrated piece, Anderson and the writer, a woman named Stephanie Epstein, insinuated that Band-Aid, yes, Band-Aid, the thing you put on when you get a little hurt, a scar, is racist because it doesn't make Band-Aids in Anderson's skin tone. Here's the paragraph. I'm not making this up. This is the paragraph. It includes a quote from Anderson. This is Stephanie Epstein, some Sports Illustrated writer that I'm sure knows everything about baseball culture. And this is how, here's the quote, or here's the paragraph. Sometimes the indignities are smaller. After the Royal Series, Anderson tore up his left thumb, sliding into second in Detroit. So he dug around in the team first aid kit until he found a one inch dot, the color of flesh, someone else's flesh. Quote from Anderson, that's small, we got bigger problems, end quote. But it is symbolic of his place in his sport in 2019. Anderson plays a white man's game and he plays it in a white man's band-aid. This man compared himself to Jackie Robinson in an article where he's claiming band-aids are racist. And just, but, but they're just a small problem, but it's, he's playing a white man's game in a white man's band-aid. I wouldn't call Anderson Jackie. I'd call him Band-Aid or Karen. He thinks or they think, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's got pronoun problems too. His purpose in life is to be a racism hunter. Racism and victimhood, honey, are the new path to stardom. It's Star Trek. Race, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the racism enterprise. It's Black Lives Matter mission to explore strange, inconsequential interactions, to seek out new racism and victimhood, to boldly go where no real man has gone before. No real man wants to be a victim, but the left has convinced black men there's no higher form of black humanity than being a damsel in distress. Instead of Tony La Russa telling Anderson to calm down, act like a man, there's no crying in baseball, and sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, La Russa baited Anderson to act like a bitch. That's the prevailing message to all men. But black men are the lab rats of the emasculation movement. We're the first to surrender our stick and balls. We're the bells of this ball. Everyone knows it. We're mocked in popular culture, in Game of Thrones. Everybody was fighting for power except a group of ballless black men called the Unsullied. Tim Anderson is Grey Worm. He snapped because his feelings got hurt when little Joshy called him Jackie. Larusa and members of the White Sox consoled little Timmy Anderson, claiming Joshy was racist. 
Black men are perceived to be that fragile and that unstable. No one can tell us the truth and no one can criticize our behavior. In a story where he defends calling an opposing player a weak ass effing N-word and insinuates that Band-Aid colors are racist, Tim Anderson compared himself to Jackie Robinson. The jokes write themselves. Anderson isn't, is a talented baseball player with the mental capacity of an eight-year-old girl. You know why he's that weak and stupid? Because the world constructed by the left rewards him for being that weak and stupid. It has nothing to do with his skin color. Jackie Robinson had the exact same complexion. Robinson lived during an era when the world rewarded men for their intellect, emotional control, and strength. Men are being transitioned into little girls and little girls are being transitioned into grown men. Weak, old men like Tony La Russa are too afraid to do anything about it. At age 77, with millions of dollars in the bank, La Russa would rather collect another check grooming men for castration than take the risk of telling Anderson or any black man to man up. All right, hope you enjoyed that on Tuesday. We had a big discussion about Dwayne Haskins. Uh, the toxology report comes out. He was drunk. He had drugs in his system. Uh, he endangered himself and others with his behavior. And I wanted to reset the narrative on how we can and should be allowed to talk about Dwayne Haskins. Take a listen to this. I want to expound on this Dwayne Haskins deal a little bit. The toxology report comes back and he's got this drug, uh, ketamine, I believe, in the system. It, it's something they give you. Uh, it's some kind of anesthesia. It obviously takes you off into another world. Uh, his blood alcohol level was 0.24. Uh, there was a woman in his car that ran out of gas. And I think those were the two things, but I tied it all together in a tweet yesterday that some people reacted poorly to. Chimdi, uh, certainly, Chekwa, he, he reacted poorly to, where I just rattled off, hey, the ketamine, the 0.24 blood alcohol level, woman in his car, parents didn't attend the funeral service, Hey, there's nothing to see here. Uh, yeah, and Adam Schefter was racist uh, for putting out that he had a successful Ohio State career but struggled in the NFL. Uh, anyway, people got upset, and they're missing the bigger picture here. That and and what Gil Brandt. I want to go back to let's. I want to play the clip of Gil Brandt, the longtime NFL executive in his 90s. He caught a lot of flack for his comments about Dwayne Haskins' death at the time. And I'm just wondering if we see those comments in a different light now that we have additional information. So let's start with playing the clip of Gil Brandt and what he had to say about Dwayne Haskins in real time when he died. I hate any time anybody is killed or anybody dies. Uh, but he was a guy that was living to be dead, so to speak. Uh, you know, they told him, don't under any circumstances leave school early. Uh, 
You just you just don't have the work habits. You don't have this. You don't have that. What do you do? Left school early. Uh, I always can remember this. Uh, we invited players to the draft, and he was one of the players we invited to the draft. And uh, we were told, no, uh, uh, we're uh, we're going to have our own party. His own party was uh, a party at the bowling alley, charged him 50 bucks to get into the bowling alley for his party. Uh, it was always something, you know. It, it's it's one of those things. Uh, I'm never offside, but they keep calling me for offside. Is what it is. So, you know, it, it's a tragic thing. Anytime anybody dies, it's tragic, uh, and especially when you're 24 years old and you got the whole your whole life ahead of you. Uh, but uh, you know, maybe if he'd have stayed in school a year, uh, he wouldn't do silly things. All right, so that was Gil Brandt 12, 14 hours after, maybe less time after learning of Dwayne Haskins' death. Everybody screamed up and down that that was totally irresponsible. It was racist. Gil Brandt must be fired. Get him off radio, blah, blah, blah. Now that we have the facts in, and, and just keep in mind, Dwayne Haskins died allegedly after he got out of his car to go get gas and was trying to cross a highway, I believe with eight different lanes. And he was hit by a truck and then eventually by another car and that's what caused his death. And now we come to find out he had drugs in his system and a blood alcohol level that's three times the legal limit, I believe in Florida. I don't want to dance on his grave, I'm not doing that. What I'm trying to say is there was more to this story and there's more we can learn from this story and that there's no problem with journalists or broadcasters exploring the truth about Dwayne Haskins in real time. The truth sets us free. That's not a saying, a slogan. That is the truth of what the gospel says to us. And so this, oh my God, don't talk about the truth about Dwayne Haskins immediately after his death. Why not? It's never a bad time to discuss the truth. And just because you're discussing the truth doesn't mean you have disrespect for Dwayne Haskins, doesn't mean you dislike Dwayne Haskins, doesn't mean you, you want to denigrate his legacy. It means you're attracted to the truth and you want to take his 24 years of life and learn as much from it as you can and apply it to your life or the life of a young person so that they don't make the same mistake. But oh no, social media and the whole woke mob. Oh, it's 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 racism to talk about this. And you're, you're dancing on this great and all the athletes. I'm a former athlete. I want to be careful. But again, these athletes all want to be worshipped. All of these celebrities all want to be worshipped, even in death. How dare you say something? truthful about Dwayne Haskins. He died. 
None of this is consistent with a biblical worldview. None of it's consistent with just a healthy approach and outlook on life. There was there was and there is far more to this Dwayne Haskins story than we're being told. This toxicology report is just part of that story, but now hopefully will allow us to have a full discussion about a young man who, from Gil Brandt to Urban Meyer, people tried to give him good advice. He took virtually none of it. And, and, and again, I understand that the young man died, but he died in a way that damaged other people. If you think the people driving the truck in the other car that hit Dwayne Haskins aren't bothered by having played any role in his death, they have scars that they will be dealing with for the rest of their lives. Dwayne Haskins' irresponsible behavior damaged people. He didn't go jump off a bridge. He got struck by two individuals who have to live with that and carry that for the rest of their lives. He endangered himself and he endangered others and we should be allowed to talk about it. You should check out that entire Tuesday show. I had a great exchange with Chim D. Chekwa who played at Ohio State, uh, but let's keep it moving. Wednesday, things turn uh, tragic. Uh, 19 children killed in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, we spent a lot of time last week uh, talking about that tragedy, and it started on Wednesday with this. I would rather live with guns than unchallenged wickedness. I would rather fight the demons that provoke Salvador Ramos's killing spree than disarm our citizenry. The right to bear arms is the primary protector of American freedom. I don't love guns. I love what they guarantee. They're the lone defense against a government's natural instinct to seize power and exercise control. In the immediate aftermath of Salvador Ramos's horrific rampage at a Texas elementary school, America's seekers of power and control focused on the teenage mass murderer's mechanism and ignored his motivation. The gun is the bad guy, not the demonic forces that radicalize an 18-year-old to gun down second, third, and fourth graders. Our current leadership elite prescribed a secular solution for an obvious spiritual problem. They believe the mechanism, gun, trumps the motivation, evil. They would rather live with unchallenged wickedness than guns. President Joe Biden said he reflected on the Texas tragedy during his 17-hour flight back from Asia. He compared America to the rest of the world. Take a listen. What struck me was these kinds of mass shootings rarely happen anywhere else in the world. <clears throat> Why? They have mental health problems. They have domestic disputes in other countries. They have people who are lost. 
But these kinds of mass shootings never happen with the kind of frequency they happen in America. Why? Why are we willing to live with this carnage? There is some truth to, uh, to what President Biden is saying, that, you know, these types of tragedy are rather, compared to the rest of the world, commonplace in America. Uh, but part of it might be that American citizens enjoy a form and level of freedom the rest of the world does not. That freedom is a byproduct of the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The price of freedom is extremely high. No one I know, no one wants to see 18 school children slaughtered. Many of us believe there are measures that can be taken to reduce mass shootings that don't <clears throat> infringe upon the country's founding principles. Before Biden spoke, Vice President Kamala Harris cajoled her political peers to take action. Let's hear from the Vice President. Enough is enough. As a nation, we have to have the courage to take action and understand the nexus between what makes for reasonable and sensible public policy to ensure something like this never happens again. So the nexus that she's talking about is actually a trade-off. She is suggesting uh, what politicians have repeatedly asked American citizens to do the last 25 years in particular. Trade your constitutionally guaranteed freedom for safety and surveillance. We made that trade after 9-11. It was a really bad trade. Political elites on both sides of the political spectrum think we're dumb enough to do it again. Freedom is the real mechanism. The seekers of power and control, the self-appointed gods of the universe and new world order view freedom as the root of all evil. Freedom must be stamped out and that means guns must be controlled. Just ask Steve Kerr, the famous basketball coach for the Golden State Warriors. Before Tuesday night's Western Conference Finals playoff game, Kerr threw a tantrum and claimed that politicians opposed to limits on the Second Amendment do so to remain in political power. Take a listen to Steve Kerr. When are we gonna do something? I'm tired, I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. Do you realize that 90% of Americans regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check. 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators 
in Washington who refused to even put it to a vote despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. The mechanism versus the motivation. That explains the divide. I used to demonize the mechanism. Seven or eight years ago, I was staunchly anti-gun. I argued the Second Amendment had outlived its usefulness. I did not believe American politicians were capable of forcefully stripping citizens of freedoms. I took for granted. I thought all Americans agreed on the essentialness of free speech and free thought and the importance of objective truth. Big tech, Silicon Valley, and social media apps awakened me from that fantasy. By the time corporations started mandating experimental vaccines, I fully understood why the founders wrote the Second Amendment. Governments seek and abuse power when they have no fear of the governed. No guns, no fear. As a nation, this is what Joe Biden had to say, as a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name will we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? My gut actually says something different. We need to boldly challenge the wickedness running wild in America. Salvador Ramos is a manifestation of our unchecked wickedness. He's a neglected and abused child. He lived with his grandmother he tried to kill yesterday. At the moment, we don't know much about his parents. His former school friends said his personality turned dark, emo, and alternative about two years ago, about the time we decided kids needed to isolate themselves to protect unhealthy people from COVID. Ramos spent the last two years of his life in the masked, isolated world we constructed out of fear. We sacrificed the mental and emotional wellness of young people for the benefit of old people controlled by fear and a lack of religious faith. According to his friends, Ramos loved playing the violent video game Call of Duty on Xbox. His friendships were no longer intimate and real. He communicated and connected via Instagram direct message. He hinted about his rampage in a direct message string with a girl in California, a girl he would never meet or talk to. Ramos existed inside Big Tech's lonely, wicked, and divisive matrix. We're comfortable with computers, video games, television, and smartphones seducing and babysitting young people because America has reduced children to a choice. They're no longer our greatest responsibility, our greatest gift from God. They're a choice made by a woman while she carries him or her in the womb. After birth, they're a burden that stands in the way of our search for our true selves, our goal of groundbreaking career assess and financial reward. We don't value family, the nurturing, connective, and healthy bonds developed and shared between man, woman, and child. We want to disrupt the nuclear family, God's natural order. We think a village can raise a child. 
A village motivates monsters. Monsters turn to drugs, sex, and violence for relief. Far more kids will die of a drug overdose this year than gun violence. The seekers of power and control support the drug mechanism. A drug haze makes the loss of freedom palatable. I'd rather live with guns than wickedness. All right, uh, Thursday felt like I lit my best fire. President Barack Obama wrote and published the dumbest tweet in the history of Twitter. He somehow managed to connect George Floyd to the tragedy in Texas. I took President Obama to task and made a much bigger point about how Obama, Black Lives Matter, they've been undermining and destabilizing the police for nearly a decade now. Yesterday, Barack Obama wrote and published the dumbest tweet in the history of Twitter. The former president stood George Floyd on the dead bodies of 19 slaughtered children. Here's what he wrote over Twitter. As we grieve the children of Uvalde today, we should take the time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us all to this day, especially those who loved him. President Obama wasn't done, he went on. In the aftermath of his murder, a new generation of activists rose up to channel their anguish into organized action, launching a movement to raise awareness of systemic racism and the need for criminal justice and police reform. Obama then told his 132 million Twitter followers how they could get involved with reimagining policing. George Floyd's death certainly reimagined policing. You can see the consequences of St. George's reimagined police force in the reluctant and deliberate reaction to 18-year-old psychopath Salvador Ramos entering an elementary school and opening fire on second, third, and fourth graders. Ramos killed 19 kids and two adults because he had nearly an hour inside the school without facing resistance. While children were gunned down, police stood in the parking lot for close to 40 minutes debating what, what exactly to do. They rejected man's natural masculine instinct to sacrifice their safety and lives in protection of women and children. Man's instincts have been reimagined in the last two decades. We've been told by the left and feminists that our masculinity is toxic. Police have been told by the Democratic Party and radical political activists that George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Rayshard Brooks, Eric Garner, and Breonna Taylor's trigger-pulling boyfriend are the real heroes and law enforcement is the villain. We've incentivized police to stand down, stand back, and give criminals a safe space to work out their frustrations, smash and grab, shoplift, argue over routine traffic stops, and murder. Obama's veneration of George Floyd, 
is an outgrowth of a cultural rot sweeping America. We've made heroes of men who contributed nothing to our society and demonized men whose jobs require them to risk everything. Having lost a close relative to police misconduct, I can empathize with George Floyd and his family. I feel sorry for George Floyd. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin should have taken his knee off Floyd's back far sooner. Chauvin's misconduct likely contributed to Floyd's tragic death. But the last nine minutes of George Floyd's life do not make him a hero. Heroes are not made laying face down in the street, high on fentanyl, gasping for air. Heroes charge into burning buildings to save the lives of people they do not know. Heroes are killed after they pass legislation ending slavery and segregation. Heroes work two jobs to provide for their kids, suffer through marriage counseling to honor their sacred covenant, and coach Little League teams. Heroes have far more on their resume than victim. Floyd's resume is littered with bad decisions, petty crimes, occasional violence, and pornography. Barack Obama wants to romanticize George Floyd. It's not surprising given Obama's own resume. He's mixed race, half black, half white. He grew up in Hawaii, raised by white people. He attended elite schools, including Harvard. Obama desires street cred, but he knows absolutely nothing about the streets other than what he gleaned from watching his favorite TV show, The Wire. Obama naively thinks George Floyd is the Wire character Bubbles, a well-intentioned, gold-hearted dope fiend. The truth is, based on his criminal record, Floyd is more like an older, just-released-from-prison version of Marquise Bird Hilton, the violent enforcer Omar Little framed for murder. I'm not arguing that Floyd got what he deserved, but no one on the streets cried when Omar lied about Bird in court. But the game is out there, and it's either play or get played. There you go. The game is out there. It's either play or get played. You swallow enough drugs, commit enough crimes, resist arrest long enough, and the game is going to get you. That's what happened to George Floyd. Anyone with an ounce of street sense knows this. Obama's sense is all political. It's not street. He and his political teammates are promoting chaos within the United States to force this country to get on board with the globalist agenda and new world order. America must fall. There's no quicker path to destruction and chaos than the undermining of law enforcement. The demonization of law enforcement and celebration of criminality are as intentional as the feminization of American men. Men are being baited to reject their natural masculine instinct. With the same number of firefighters running to the burning World Trade Center towers in 2022, as did in 2001, 
I'd say the number would be cut in half, if not more. Two decades ago, men were rewarded and celebrated for acts of heroism, acts of masculinity and patriotism. Back then, we still saved our highest praise for the men and women who at least tried to do the right thing. Today, the promoters of immorality share and or dominate our biggest stages of adulation. Snoop Dogg Crip walking during the Super Bowl halftime show was portrayed as a sign of progress. Cardi B, she got a one-on-one -on -one interview with presidential candidate Joe Biden. George Floyd is more revered than David Dorn or any cop. Police officers do not earn huge salaries. We augmented their salaries with respect and reverence. Now that Obama, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and corporate media have eliminated respect and reverence from a cop's paycheck, should we not be surprised that law enforcement is more reluctant to risk their lives? What happened in Uvalde, Texas is no different from what has been going on in America's major cities in the aftermath of George Floyd. Police officers are reluctant to engage with criminals and violent crime has skyrocketed because of it. As Barack Obama pretends to grieve for the children in Texas, he should make time to recognize that America's emotional and immature reaction to George Floyd contributed to the slaughter of 19 little kids. All right, <clears throat> and on Friday, I kind of lit some fire mid-show when I gave an explanation of what pro-choice really looks like when it's adopted by men and women. That's what we saw down in Texas, the pro-choice movement uh, come to real life. Check this out. You know, we've had two days of discussions about, about this. And, and one of the points I've been wanting to make is, and again, this is this whole feminization, men not playing their roles, and, and, and from Dave Shannon to Royce White to TJ Today, when we start talking about root causes, and, and it's like when uh, Dave Shannon and Royce White in the previous days, earlier this week, made points about how this all connects to the abortion issue. And like there's an original sin, and from that sin grows all these other sins. And so <clears throat> what you just saw from these men in Texas, and again, I'm not trying to beat them up. I'm trying to say the culture's wrong and that's what happened. But we have this pro-choice culture that we believe in. And, and like, oh, <laughs> pro-choice is good and anybody that's against it is bad. You just saw what pro-choice looked like. Those men, those police officers in Texas, they looked at those kids, listened to women screaming, and said, you know, we got a choice here. We can either go in or we can stay out here and let them bleed out and let the killer do whatever he wants. He, he's a pro, those were all pro-choice men. And they made a choice to let those kids die and suffer. And so that's what the whole pro-choice thing looks like 
in real time, in real life. Those men did what's best for them. That's the choice they made. Screw the kids. Oh yeah, they're outside the womb, but they're no different than the kid inside the womb. They have a choice. And what TJ's arguing, and I'm arguing, uh, and other, Royce is arguing, and Dave Shannon's arguing, is there is no choice when it comes to a child. You did it. You laid down, stuck your unprotected penis inside of a woman. Your woman spread your legs, let him stick his unprotected penis inside of you. That's when you made the choice. The choices are over once that baby is fertilized and inside the womb. But if you want to live in a pro-choice world, you just saw it in Uvalde, Texas. Men sat out there and they had a choice. <laughs> I'm not risking that, not for those kids. My, my police chief says stand down. They stood down. That's what pro-choice America looks like. All right, enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you on Tuesday.